Well, from singing about the cross, we move to the empty tomb. Join me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, where we continue to look at verses 1 through 18. John 20, 1 through 18, where John, in his own eyewitness way, begins to conclude his story of Jesus. And here in this chapter, he chronicles the capstone of Christ's saving work, which is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If John 20 does not follow John 19, then everything John wrote in the first 19 chapters of his gospel would be meaningless. Every miracle Jesus performed would only show his inability to perform the greater miracle of saving us from the grave. Every sermon he preached would only show his penchant for bluster and nonsense. And every promise he made could only be deemed the foolish thinking of a madman or the lies of a fraud. But... If the resurrection in John 20 did take place, if the grave does not have the final say, if the cross is not where Christ's existence ends, then apparent weakness becomes power and supposed bluster becomes promise and the lies of a madman become the hope for the sinner. That is exactly what we see in verses 1 through 18. If you've been with us two weeks ago, you know how we're working our way through this passage. We're seeing evidences, nine evidences that Jesus physically rose again from the dead. Nine evidences that disprove all the wrong theories out there. And you remember those. The wrong tomb theory, the swoon theory, on they go. Each theory bordering on the bizarre to the ludicrous. Yet each theory attempting to explain away Jesus' power over death. Why? Why the theories? Because as we saw a few weeks ago, it is the resurrection of Jesus that is God's proof of coming judgment. It's the resurrection of Jesus that is supernatural proof that what Jesus promised in John 5 will take place. Here's the promise. That there is an hour coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his, the resurrected Christ's voice. Christ is coming back. He's returning. And all will come forth. Those who did the good deeds, those who came to Christ in saving faith, when they hear Christ's voice, they will come to a resurrection of life for the believer The resurrection of Jesus means joy, hope, glory. But for the unbeliever continuing the promise, those who committed the evil deeds, those who have rejected Christ's gospel, refused to acknowledge his resurrection, Jesus says they will come from the grave, they will experience a resurrection of judgment. Those are frightening words. But they are true because Jesus rose again from the dead. 
And so John writing so that we might believe, you see that in verse 31, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, the resurrected one. And through that belief, have life in Jesus's name. John is writing so that we might escape that coming judgment, experience life in Jesus. That's the point of the book. John gives us nine irrefutable evidences confirming that Jesus did indeed rise again from the dead. Confirmation that eternal life is only found in him. Proof that a coming resurrection, whether unto blessing or destruction, that resurrection is coming. We looked at the first four evidences two weeks ago. Evidence number one, Jesus' followers knew the tomb where Jesus was buried. They knew the tomb where Jesus was buried. Cross off the wrong tomb theory. It doesn't make sense. John is clear. Notice verse one. Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. What tomb? The same tomb that ends John 19, where Jesus was laid. There's no confusion. Look at verse four. John tells us that he came to the tomb, the already mentioned tomb, the same tomb. Verse six, Peter entered the tomb. There's no wrong tomb theory out there. They knew where Jesus was buried. It led into evidence number two. Evidence number two, the death stone was miraculously removed. We see that in verse one. We would expect the stone to be rolled away. That's not what we see here. Verse one, John tells us that the stone was taken away. It was taken out of that grooved channel. It was laid aside never to seal Jesus in the grave again. And remember the size of the stone between one and a half to two tons. This is nothing less than a supernatural act. That's what the other gospel accounts confirm. So cross off the stolen body theory. It's led into evidence number three. Evidence number three, Jesus' followers were too rational, too rational to imagine a hallucinated Jesus. But it's true throughout the account, whether it be Mary, arrived first to the tomb, or Peter and John who followed her, remains true is that none of them expected to find Jesus' tomb empty. They didn't expect this. Jesus swooning never entered their mind. No one is expecting a resurrection. Look at verse two. The only explanation Mary can come up with, she's logical. Verse two, she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple and said to them, they, most likely the religious leaders, have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. They've taken his body to desecrate it further. Look at verse 13, she repeats this. They have taken away my Lord. Repeated in verse 15, sir. She thought this was the gardener. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Mary is not some highly imaginative woman working herself up to see someone who's not really there. She's logical, she's rational. There's no hallucinated Jesus. It brings us to evidence number four. 
The tomb was found empty by three witnesses. Evidence number four, the tomb was found empty by three witnesses. The first witness is Mary. Verse two, she sees the empty tomb. The second witness is John. He looks into the empty tomb in verse five. Then Peter enters the empty tomb in verse six. Deuteronomy 19 the law of confirmation that is satisfied on the evidence of two or three, a matter shall be confirmed. It is confirmed, proven, the tomb is empty. The empty tomb must be explained somehow. It must. In fact, each of those wrong theories acknowledge that the tomb was empty. So the body of Jesus has never been produced, ever. And so we're left with two options. Two options, it was either the work of man, the work of man that doesn't fit the evidence, or it was the work of God. That is what the New Testament claims. That is what these three witnesses confirm. It's the only two options. The case should be closed, but John in his own way, he continues to testify to the fact, and so he continues to offer evidence even after these first four. Brings us to evidences five and six for this morning. That's in verses four through 10. Evidences five and six begin reading with me in verse four. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. Let's pick it up with evidence number five. Evidence number five, Jesus' death cloths were left behind. Jesus' death cloths were left behind. This is eyewitness testimony and evidence that only John records. So I want you to notice the emphasis here. Look at verse five. Whenever something's repeated, there's emphasis. Verse five, he arrives at the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, lying on the stone shelf where Jesus's body should have been. Repeated again in verse six. Again, for emphasis, Simon Peter following him. He then enters the tomb and he too saw in an up close and personal way. John saw this from the window Peter sees this from inside the tomb. He sees the linen wrappings lying there. Same phrase, same evidence. It's an amazing detail. Not only did Jesus conquer death, but Jesus left the very symbols of death behind. Now, what were these wrappings? Look back to chapter 19. In verse 40, you have Joseph of 
Arimathea and Nicodemus, they took, verse 40, the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings. So this would have involved strips of cloth tying Jesus' arms close to his body. Other strips of cloth would then be wound, wrapped around Jesus. Oftentimes, a corpse would then be covered with a wide linen sheet, about two times the length of the body. The feet would have been lined up at the end of the sheet, the remainder of the sheet then wrapped up over him, tied around the feet. Verse 40, you see, or verse 39, you see that there's a mixture of myrrh and aloes. See, are about 100 pounds weight, 75 pounds in our measurement. Those are spices, perfumes. It would have been spread inside the wrappings, the inner folds of the linen. It was a kind of glue, kind of glue. It held everything together. And the way John describes the left behind wrappings here, he is drawing a contrast to another tomb. Another tomb. He's drawing us back to John 11. This is by design. You remember John 11, Lazarus came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. So you have two dead men, you have two resurrections, you have two empty tombs. But there's a difference. When Lazarus left the grave, death came out with him. Why? Because he will return to the grave. He will die again. But when Jesus left the tomb, death stayed behind. Why? He will not die again. Death stays behind. Why? Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1, Jesus is the one alive forevermore. So much so, he holds the keys. He is the master of death and of Hades contrast between Lazarus and Jesus. And it seems here that Jesus's body simply passed through these death garments. He leaves them behind like an empty shell. They're still in the shape of his body, no doubt because of the perfume, the spices, that glue. This is the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection body. It's a physical body but it's able to pass through solid material. We'll see that later in this chapter. When Jesus appears to his apostles, but he comes through the locked doors. John Stott described the death cloths this way. They were a discarded chrysalis. And I love that imagery from death to life, a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged from death to life, never to die again. So you can cross off the swoon theory here that cannot explain how Jesus loosed himself from these linen wrappings. Again, think of the contrast with Lazarus. Lazarus needed others to untie him. You remember that? He kind of gets out and everybody's just standing there. What does Jesus say? First thing, can someone go and untie him? Like, are you gonna leave him there forever? So somebody needed to untie Lazarus and Lazarus hadn't been crucified and speared 36 hours previous. 
clothes were like a straitjacket holding the dead victim secure. Cross off the swoon theory. You can cross off the, the grave robber theory again because of the detail we find in verse seven, notice. The face cloth which had been on his head, so that's a, a twisted cloth, would have been placed under the chin tied to the top of the head. It keeps the mouth of the corpse closed. And notice the detail. That cloth was not lying with the linen wrappings. It was rolled up. It's still twisted. That's the idea. It's still, still twisted in an oval shape. It was in a place by itself, not on a different shelf, not thrown on the floor, but where Jesus's head would have been. The whole scene is orderly, it's calm. It doesn't seem to be some violent, quick raid by grave robbers. Grave robbers would have plundered the grave without discretion. They would have either taken the body away quickly, leaving nothing behind, trying to get away as fast as they can, or they would have torn the grave wrappings off. Remember the scene, the soldiers were guarding the tomb. There's an official wax seal warning of any intruder entering. They're not taking their time. I have a hard time folding my clothes from the dryer. Okay, grave robbers are not folding clothes and putting where they should be. One commentator puts it this way, no robbers would have ever rewound the wrappings in their original shape for there would not have been time to do so. It's just logic. He would have flung the cloths down in disorder and fled with the body. Fear of detection would have made them act as hastily as possible. It is almost as if John knew what the critics would one day claim happened. So this cannot be a robbery. It cannot be a resuscitation, a swoon, because of evidence number five, Jesus' death cloths were left behind. So given all the evidence up to this point, all the evidence, the violent moving of the stone, the empty tomb confirmed, those grave garments, the chrysalis left behind. Notice verse eight, we read of two reactions, two reactions from two eyewitnesses. The first reaction is from John, verse eight. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, follows Peter. And he, John, saw. And the word here is not just simply seeing with the eyes, but he's interpreting, he's making sense of the scene. And John's conclusion then is this, verse eight, and he believed. That's the conclusion. I will believe. He's persuaded by the evidence. He believes that Jesus was alive. John is the first apostle to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. But that is not how Peter responds in verse eight. Peter's not mentioned that will be included in verse nine in a moment. Nothing is said of Peter believing. It's only John believing. I think the silence is deafening here. 
At this point, Peter does not believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Luke 24 actually confirms this. Luke records this, Peter went away to his home marveling, it's not the word believe, marveling, wondering, questioning, He's trying to make sense of what had happened. John believes, Peter does not believe. And in my mind, this is an odd way to end the first part of this resurrection story. What do we expect to be said here? They both believe. That's what we expect. Look at verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. That's it. That's the conclusion. The apostles not only leave the scene, but they leave one another they go their separate ways. One goes away believing. The other goes away wondering and, and questioning. Again, it's an odd ending. It's a passage meant to prove Jesus' resurrection. What about Peter? How are we to make sense of these two reactions? Well, look at verse 9. Here's how we make sense of it. Verse 9, editorial note from John. Verse nine begins four. So here's an explanation of why he believed Jesus to be alive, but Peter didn't. Why is that? Because four, as yet they, both Peter and John, as yet they did not understand the scripture. They did not understand the Old Testament testimony that he, Christ, must rise again from the dead. So at this point, neither of these apostles have connected Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb, to any Old Testament promise. They have not made that connection. Now, this should not come as a surprise to us, though. Jesus has prepared us for this moment. Remember Jesus' promise back in chapter 14. It will only be when the helper when the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, only then, when the Spirit is given, only then will he teach you all things. Only then will he bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Only then will you be able to make sense of my death and my resurrection, even my ascension. It's only when the Spirit comes, your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or think of John 16, where Jesus promised, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. It's only through the spirits that they will be able to make sense of what has happened to Jesus. He will glorify me. He will showcase my glory. How? For he will take of mine certainly included in this are Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, especially the resurrection. You'll take of mine and the Spirit will disclose it, unveil all of them, teach them, make sense of them to you. Don't forget the religious leaders knew the tomb was empty, but they rejected Jesus. 
The Spirit must come. The Spirit must work. So John believed that Jesus had risen again from the dead, but connected to verse 9, he only believed the fact of Jesus' resurrection. The fact. At this point, he does not understand the theological, the saving, the Old Testament implications of the resurrection. And Peter did not even believe the fact of Jesus' resurrection. In both cases, the reason is because the Spirit had not yet been given to them. The Spirit had not yet revealed this truth to them. But, here's the contrast, but once the Spirit is given, it will all make sense. So let's move into evidence number six. Evidence number six the Old Testament predicted Jesus' resurrection. The Old Testament predicted Jesus' resurrection. The point of verse nine is not so much the apostles' lack of understanding the scriptures, though that is true. But the point John is driving home here is in two small words in verse nine. Notice, as yet... As yet, they did not understand the scripture. What does that mean? They will understand the scripture. There are Old Testament scriptures that do predict Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's the point. So Paul proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day. Here's the key, according to the scriptures. It's been predicted, it's been prophesied. Point of verse nine, for all who read the gospel, point of verse nine for us who will never see the empty tomb. Point of verse nine is this, do not believe that Christ conquered death only because there are witnesses to the empty tomb. Do not believe that Jesus conquered death because the stone was moved or the clothes were left behind. That's why John believed in verse 8, the fact, that's one line of evidence for sure, but that's not the only line of evidence. In fact, it's not even the best line of evidence. No, believe that Jesus conquered death because God himself predicted it. Believe the resurrected Jesus because the Old Testament prophecies announced it. The Old Testament scriptures are God's testimony to his son's resurrection. And that is what the Spirit uses to open the eyes of the sinner to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. As yet, they did not believe or connect it, but they will and they would very soon. Now, let's unpack this just a little bit further. What scriptures does John have in mind here? What scriptures? And there are three specific Old Testament prophecies that pr clearly predict a resurrected Savior. Right? Three, that's what he's referring to. There's more. There's pictures, there's types, there's more. But there's three clear Old Testament prophecies. The first 
is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And this is the prophecy that Peter himself, remember, he doesn't connect this yet, verse 9. But in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes, this is the prophecy that Peter points to. This is the prophecy that he preaches. You can turn there to Acts chapter 2. It'll be on the screen as well. But listen to Peter's sermon. Acts 2. Start in verse 22. It says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Well, that sounds different, doesn't it, from Peter who says, I don't know the man. Completely different. (laughs) Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, you saw him, you saw the miracles, you saw the ministry, you heard his claims, you saw his power, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, watch, you nailed to a cross. It's dramatic, it's pointed. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That was an undeniable fact. He died, everyone saw it. Well, just as undeniable as Jesus' crucifixion is Jesus' resurrection. Verse 24. But God raised him up again. God raised him up. Peter is no longer wondering or deliberating what happened. And here's the question. Why was Peter so certain? Why was Peter so certain? Answer, it wasn't only because he walked into the empty tomb. That's not why. And even further, it wasn't only because he saw with his own eyes the resurrected Jesus. Now, Peter believes, and we too today should believe. Why? Continue into verse 25. For, because David says of him, brings us back to the Old Testament. Peter now quotes Psalm 1610. A David says of him, you, speaking of the Father, you will not abandon my, speaking of the Messiah, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, referring to the grave. You will not leave me in a tomb, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It was prophesied before. But Peter knows what his hearers are thinking. They're thinking this, wait, Peter, wait. You've just quoted a psalm from David. Why doesn't that psalm refer to David? Not Messiah, not Jesus. It's a valid question. David, uh, Peter anticipates it. Which is why Peter continues, look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. King's dead. David's body, David's body was abandoned to the grave. David's body underwent decay. It's undeniable. And his tomb is with us to this day. The dust of David's body was still there. 
Look at verse 30 though. And so, here's Peter's point. And so Psalm 16 cannot be about David. He must be thinking of somebody else, someone greater. And so Peter says, David was a prophet and he looked ahead and spoke of what? In Psalm 16, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. John 20 is fulfillment of Psalm 16. He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. That is one reason Jesus rose on Sunday. It was so that death did not have enough time to decompose his body. It's the details of the prophecy. And thus Peter's conclusion is this, this Jesus God raised up again. That's the first Old Testament prophecy that predicts Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And though back in John 20, Peter does not connect that just yet in verse nine, he will. And once the Holy Spirit is given, it all makes sense to both John and Peter. And Peter proclaims this with a boldness and a joy. We will never visit the empty tomb of Jesus, but the scriptures predicted it. Second prophecy. Second prophecy referred to in John 20. It's Psalm 22, Psalm 22. That's the Psalm Jesus himself referred to while he hung on the cross. So this is a Psalm that John, now let's focus on John believing later when the Spirit's given. John heard Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse one. Jesus is not asking the question, why have you forsaken me? Because he's unaware of why he was forsaken. That's not the point. He's asking the question because he's drawing our attention back to that Psalm. Even from the cross, he says that Psalm is being fulfilled by me. And yes, Psalm 22 is a Psalm that apply to David, that is true. In fact, Psalm 22 is a psalm that applies to all of us who feel abandoned and alone. But when you read that psalm, you cannot help but notice that it goes beyond what David experienced. This is not only about David, this is about the greater David. This is a psalm about, Psalm 22, verse six, a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. That's Matthew 27. That's what the religious leaders did to Jesus. Psalm 22 must go beyond David because the forsaken one, verse 14, is poured out like water. And in his own words, all my bones are out of joint. That's what happens when Jesus' beam is slammed into the ground. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. That's why Jesus says, I am thirsty. 
Dogs, scavengers have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. And then this statement, they pierced my hands and my feet. It's an execution not invented until hundreds of years later. They pierced my hands and my feet. Thomas, look at my hands, look at my feet. Verse 17, Psalm 22 adds this. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's what the Roman soldiers did. So like Psalm 16, Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. It's a psalm about the crucified Christ. One commentator writes this. These sufferings transcend those of any historical sufferer the single exception of Jesus. It's about Christ. And yet death is not how that psalm ends. Psalm 22, just like Psalm 16, Psalm 22 ends in life. Listen to verse 22. I, the forsaken one, the pierced one, I will tell of your name, God's name to my brethren. I will not stay dead. I will live. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I will be resurrected from the dead and return to glory. It's what Jesus prayed in John 17. In fact, verse 28 promises that this forsaken one, this hand and feet pierced man, Well, one day, I love it, will one day rule the nations. How does he rule the nations? He's resurrected from the dead. And all will bow before him. In fact, they will come and declare his righteousness. So unlike David, whose body remains in the grave to this day, the forsaken one of Psalm 22 lives. He is the resurrected Jesus who will one day return to rule the nations. That's how Jesus interpreted this psalm from the cross. And again, though Peter and John did not connect this to the empty tomb, once the Spirit was sent, they would not only have understood it, they would have believed it with all their heart. There is prophecy. And it is fulfilled. Last prophecy here, last clear prophecy, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. When you look at the New Testament, you see this clearly, clearly refers to Jesus. Jesus connected it to himself in Mark 10, Luke 22, John 12. Matthew applies this to Jesus in Matthew 8. This is the prophecy the Ethiopian was reading when Philip said, that's about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is clearly about Christ. But this prophecy, though it is about a suffering servant, is not just about a suffering servant. This is a prophecy about a resurrected and enthroned king. Listen now to how the prophecy begins. Isaiah 52, 13, it's the beginning of the whole section. Behold, be amazed at this. 
stand in awe, behold my servant, the one who will suffer, my servant will prosper. After suffering comes success. And how will he prosper? Verse 13, he will be high. Translated, he will be raised up. It's resurrection. Next statement, he will be lifted up. That's ascension, back to glory. And he will be greatly exalted. He will be seated at the Father's right hand. There's the success of the suffering servant. And then the end of the prophecy concludes this way. So often we focus in just on the suffering and forget the beginning and the end. Verse 10, he, it's the pierced, crushed servant, he will see his offspring. He'll live. He'll see his followers, the spiritual family. He'll see the very ones for whom he died back in verses four through six. Verse 11, he will see them and he will be satisfied. Verse 11, the father will also prolong his servant's days. He will never die again. So just like the one who would not be abandoned to the grave, Psalm 16, and just like the pierced one who will one day rule the nation, Psalm 22, here, the servant, Isaiah 53, though he will be cut off from the land of the living, this servant will be raised up. He will be exalted. He will be enthroned. And he will live forever. Go back to John 20. This is why John writes in verse nine that Jesus, according to the scripture, that Jesus must rise. Underline it. He must rise from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is a divine necessity. Why? Because the Father's own integrity and faithfulness demand it. If he doesn't, then the Father is not faithful, he is not sovereign, and he is not good to fulfill what he's promised. The Old Testament scriptures are the Father's resurrection testimony. And so why can we, why can we who are not eyewitnesses to the empty tomb, why can we who did not see the stone moved, why can we who will never see the empty grave close, why can we believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? Why can we testify of this? Why is this our testimony to others? Why do we bank our eternal life on this fact? It is because the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to open our eyes to see that truth and to believe it. And in God's will and God's timing, when we proclaim these truths, when we proclaim these scriptures, the Holy Spirit will open up sinners' eyes as well. They cannot believe without the Spirit at work. Yes, they can believe the fact. Listen, 60% um, of Americans believe 
that Jesus rose again from the dead. The fact. But you cannot believe the theology. You cannot believe in that saving way unless the Spirit gives you a new heart and faith to believe. That's why we proclaim this. Because God is faithful and the Spirit's at work. Father, we thank you that we have a risen Savior. We thank you that you have opened up our eyes. You've done this miracle through the work of your spirit. We thank you for that. This is a gift of grace from your hand. You have shown us mercy. Father, we pray that you would grant us a boldness as well. Like Peter, proclaim that this man crucified, you raised from the dead. Give us that boldness to spread that gospel. And Lord, as we remember now as a church family, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the Lord's table, I pray that you would humble our hearts. You would fill us with great joy that we would take of these elements in repentance and in worship. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.